Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Hi. Hi. Um, I heard you um, on a conference, which which I thought was a really unique conference, the Wounded Healer Conference, organised by um, Practitioner Health. Um, and I mean, for individuals that, that that don't know who Practitioner Health are um it's an organization that i think every healthcare professional should um, at least research or maybe even get involved with um because you know i think being a doctor should have a uh you know bad for health sort of sticker label <laughs> sort of on there from a um from you know just from the inception of thinking of becoming a doctor it's like well well well, actually being a doctor you know does come with a lot of um health warning sticker labels uh, that you should think about um how 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 do they approach approach you what what's the story behind practitioner health getting involved in well, I have been involved with practitioner health a bit for a while. I mean, I've I've worked been working on suicide uh, since my own experiences of patient suicide very early on in my uh, career as a consultant psychiatrist, and met Claire Girarda, who also does quite a lot of work with suicide, and she works with the suicide of doctors and 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 sort of aftermath of that. Whereas I work with trying to understand the nature of the suicide suicidal act itself because I'm a psychoanalyst, so trying to understand the psychodynamics of suicide um, and try and really understand the mechanisms that lead someone to do that. And also the profound effect a death by suicide can have on those who are bereaved, which for a large part of the work I do is the clinicians who've been working with the person that dies. So the very, you know, from my own experience of being profoundly traumatized by a series of deaths by suicide, um, you know, and nothing being available or supportive at that time and no no discussion whatsoever about the impact that this actually has on you to um, working over the last 15 years on trying to understand that impact, but also trying to develop resources and support for clinicians. Um, and in, in that in that work, then I lined up with Claire and actually have done some work with practitioner health around that as well, done, done some work with them because they see doctors who've also been traumatized in this way. So we were linking and, and, and discussing that. Um, and I've done presentations for them before and I think they thought, well, this is quite helpful. So let's sort of have this on a wider, put it, put this discussion around suicide on a wider, uh, sort of in a wider forum for a wider, um, sort of to open it up for a wider discussion. Mm-hmm. And 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 what did you think of the um, the conference itself, the Wounded Healer Conference? Well, I, th- I thought it was a very good conference. I thought it was a very good conference, but I think a lot of the work that Practitioner Health and Clara have been doing, I think, is raising awareness of the patient inside us all. You know, that as doctors, you know, you're talking about doctors, you know, that coming with a health warning. 
But I also wonder whether there's also something to become a doctor. I think there are probably particular vulnerabilities that we have in our mental health already that actually make us particularly, um, uh, you know, particularly desire to be a doctor, but also have the characteristics that are needed to be a doctor currently. You know, maybe that'll change with time. Um, so I think we come in with our with our own particular vulnerabilities and then and then, you know, we need to do this for a reason. So I'm not quite sure. I, I totally think that the job makes us ill, if you like. I think we need to sometimes go through these experiences, but I think not having the support around these experiences and not having compassion and understanding ourselves for ourselves and for our colleagues uh, can make uh, can damage us so I think in a way it's you know yes the experiences are very hard but but I think there's something in the way that we respond to ourselves and each other which make which which really contributes to the mental health difficulties that we have yeah yeah I mean um I mean that was one of the questions I asked um a previous guest that you know do we have to go through the the trauma or the difficulties ourselves in order to understand uh, what it means um, to treat patients. I mean, she was treating patients with with PTSD. You know, um, couldn't really treat them unless we actually go through it ourselves. Um, I, I think it might be the other way around. Yeah. I think we might have already been through it. Right. Actually, and I think we maybe need to go through it with our patients to help understand our own much earlier traumas, actually. So it's understanding what we've been going through all along um and conveying that in a in a therapeutic manner yeah and our patients one, well one of one of uh, one of the theories with a sort of psychoanalytic understanding about doctors and working in mental health is we project a part of ourselves the patient part of ourselves into our patients and then look after we can look after our patient uh, and by doing that we look after the patient's part of ourselves but we can't look after the patient in us we have, a, we have a profound difficulty in, in trying to acknowledge and accept the patient within us. And the really interesting thing about the pandemic, and I think um, practitioner health, is about, you know, the pandemic brought the patient in the doctor out on the surface. So we became very clearly patients in the process of the pandemic. You know, we couldn't disown the patient part of ourselves um, anymore. So the pandemic brought that to the surface. Um, and it's very interesting. Uh, we were. I, I'm, a, I'm a member of the Wellbeing Committee at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and there was a presentation there of um, one of my colleagues who set up a wellbeing service for psychiatrists, actually, during the pandemic. And he found that the, all the psychiatrists, there were many, many more, uh, mental health practitioners generally, many more that referred than he thought was going to happen. And actually, they all had secondary level care mental health problems. So we have secondary care level mental health problems, and we're treating people with secondary level care mental health problems. Interesting. And, That's and, also, yeah. also what makes us very, very poor patients, because when we have to be a patient, we have to accept back the projections that we give our patients. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. I mean, can this happen over a period of time or is it sort of um, can it happen quickly? The 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 becoming a patient, the, the taking back of the. Uh, I, 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 well, I think it probably takes time. Yeah. I think it probably takes time. I mean, this is why when you're trained in psychotherapy, you have to be a become a patient. You have to become a psychotherapy patient. And that's that's over usually many years to learn to take back 
to become to, to learn to take back the patient part of yourself. Yeah. And, I, and I think I think in doing that, I mean, I think when we can acknowledge our own vulnerability and our own mental health difficulties, which I think is becoming much, you know, in the environments that I talk in, doctors are starting to talk about their own mental health difficulties much more than they did. And I think in in being able to accept that, I think it makes us better clinicians. And do you, do you think that shift has happened? I mean, you know, there's the pandemic. Did it happen before then, would you say? Was yeah. there a shift? I think along if you if you can see the trajectory of practitioner health, I think it probably follows a bit to do with the growth of practitioner health, this recognition that actually there really does need to be some mental health support for doctors. And then it has grown and grown and grown and grown with awareness growing as well and demand growing and need growing. Do you think there's a society role in this or is it just uh, professionally led by by the profession? Um, it depends what you mean, the, the societal role. I think, yes, I think there is a change in perception of doctors from being invul invulnerable heroes, from being the sort of heroic, uh, invulnerable um, sort of profession to recognising vulnerability. But I think that's probably come in part to do with the need. I mean, you know, personally, I think a, a large aspect of this is to do with what's been happening in the National Health Service and the increased pressure that's being put on clinicians in general in the National Health Service. And to stay there, I think, necessitates, um, you know, the development, I think, of some, some significant psychological, it's, you know, it's a significant psychological challenge to remain in the NHS in many situations at the moment. So I think it's putting doctors under immense pressure. Um, and other clinicians to, under immense pressure. So that's sort of the sort of pressures on the NHS, I think, are being reflected in doctors' men mental health and other clinicians' mental health. Which is, you know, which is a major problem because, you know, the pressures are mounting and uh, the staff mm. numbers are dwindling. And yeah. um, huge. so, you know, you know, we've reached um, um, a tipping point. Well, I mean, we probably reached the tipping point many, many years ago. Yeah, um, I, I think so. I did a talk in 2018 when I, I left the um, National Health Service in 2018. And I did a talk which is online, actually, um, which is called The Impossibility of Working in the Current NHS. And at that time, definitely, it felt to me, certainly my understanding is that, that, that this wasn't sustainable. It just isn't sustainable. You can't carry on having an increase in demand with the reduction in in staffing you just can't and at that point it had gone beyond the tipping point and what you could see then was that, that, that what the government would say is we put in all these billions into the national health service but what you could see about the use of that money was it was on locum staff uh, and actually the employed staff were going down and down and down all the time so uh, at that point it really did and and the referrals I mean the referrals to secondary care mental health services have hugely increased so you've got a totally unsustainable situation. Um, do you see any um, any light at the end of the tunnel for the NHS in this current situation and if not sort of what are these solutions? Well, that's that's a huge question, and I think, <laughs> and I can't, I'm not sure that I can't answer that. I mean, you know, I think I, I think there's something about the need to think at a deeper level um, mm. about actually what's going on, and I, and and I think this probably speaks to a lot of the work that I do. I suppose my my belief is you have to have to look after the staff. You have to look after the staff um, and care about the well-being of the staff that you've got. Uh, 
and you know all the clinicians that are working in the service but the trouble is you know and I think I think that really has to be thought about at a deeper level because people can leave they have choices they can leave um so I was looking in the paper was it yesterday morning and there was a government the government minister I've forgotten because everybody's changed so much recently was saying doctors have to work at the weekend we have to have to clear the backlog we have to have doctors working over the weekend now I've been there before when that's that's happened well that's great but how is that going to be a resourced and how are the doctors whoever it is that's doing that is their well-being not going to be negatively affected because again if you put an awful lot more pressure on people to work longer hours to work weekends they're going to leave you know it's as though there is some fantasy that the people the staff that work in the nhs do not have choices but they do they don't have to stay in a relationship with a workplace that, that where which makes them unhappy. So that, that I think the key, a really, really key issue is thinking about work, workforce well-being. And, you know, we're talking about the deeper questions here, not the sort of, uh, you know, put this plaster on and, and you know, do these exercises. No, and I suppose the other thing that I brought up in the talk that I did about the impossibility of working in the current NHS is that I, I think there's something unrealistic under underpinning our beliefs about the NHS which is you can't the basic tenets of the NHS as they were described initially um, have nothing about resources in it and basically what we believing and what we're trying to do are primitive unconscious is sort of manifest which is we can give everything to everybody whenever they want it all the time and we can't we cannot. And we have to come to terms with something, I think. And I think in there, the, the wider public has a role to play, because I think there's something about sort of facing reality and that we can't give everybody every everything whenever they want it all the time. We have to think about resources. We have to. And that sort of in a way it needs to be, um, I think, written in. To the to the sort of underpinning ideas in the NHS, and I, mean, I think there's a I think there's a, there was a fatal flaw written in um, when in the development of the NHS that there was nothing about resources in there, and it was playing to primitive fantasies, um, which of course have extremely you know they're really really important and healthy ideas underpinning it about being able to provide good universal healthcare, but there has to be thinking about resources, and I think this fantasy that we can give everybody anything they want all the time, whenever they want it, needs to be thought about. Yeah, I mean, it it, it sounds like um, a defunct uh, mythology that's that's persisted. And, you know, we're being told to follow that, that defuncted well, mythology. Well, we you have know, a role to play. We have a role to play in signing up to it. We're not being asked to follow that. I think there's a part of us desperately trying to hang on to that. Yeah. I want to, you know... I want to believe that I can have anything I want healthcare wise whenever I want it all the time. I do want to believe that, but that isn't reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there's a profound pattern there for sure. Um, but it doesn't mean that that pattern uh, is, is um, realistic and, and reliable mm -hmm. and, um, and is relevant in 2022. I think mm -hmm. that's something that we're kind of grappling with. Um, it's there on the unconscious um, collectively and um, it needs to be brought to the surface and have, you know, make, make, make it more consciously aware, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, our collective unconscious, our co a primitive collective unconscious does determine an awful lot of things that happen. You know, that another whole area around this is the idea of blame. You know, someone's got to be to blame for everything. Again, is, is something of, of our primitive unconscious. Is there can be no losses, there can be no... Uh, no accidents there can be no human errors there everything has to be perfect and if anything isn't perfect and there is a loss a human loss then someone somewhere has to be to blame um, and blame is a very primitive word coming out of a sort of primitive state of mind a sort of non-mentalizing state of mind um, which which I mean has actually little reality-based meaning. Blame as a word has very little reality-based meaning but we all sort of seem to sign up to that I mean that's the parlance, if that's right, in our media, in our health services, you know, it's the sort of parlance of blame. Is, it, is that because it's a more archaic uh, sort of survival mechanism that we have inside of us? To, well, well I th I, what it is, is, is yes, I mean, it's a, very, it's a primitive, it's the primitive response so that if I suffer a loss, and I don't know what's happened here. So let's just take suicide, for example, as an example of that. So suicide is a very, very distressing, sudden um, loss, profound, tragic loss, sudden. And we do not know why it's happened. We don't know. And you can never find out why someone has died by suicide because they're not there to tell you. So you're left in this state of uncertainty. And we can't, as, as and, and this sort of uncertainty really uh, challenges our mind we can't compute it so what we tend to do particularly in the acute uh, acute early stages of a loss event is we create a narrative so there's nothing worse than uncertainty it fragments our reality um, so what we do is we very very quick quickly create a narrative and that narrative will tell us why this has happened but it actually the narrative is delusional it's not based in reality whatsoever but it relieves us of the uncertainty Phew, I know what happened here. This happened, this happened because somebody did this, and now I don't have to worry anymore or have to cope with the uncertainty of it. But it's totally unsatisfactory and it doesn't work in the long term because it is actually delusional. Um, but but it happens for all of us. We write narratives about things that we don't understand uh, or we can't compute, and, and we sort of run by these narratives, and blame is a word that is indicative of this delusional narrative. It's indicative. So if you work in personality disorder services, you talk about um, mentalizing and non-mentalizing states of mind. And we all, when we're very stressed, we get into a non-mentalizing state of mind where everything has to be this or that. Um, uh, and, and one of the words that is a sign that someone is in, in a non-mentalizing state of mind, a highly anxious state of mind where they can't think is use of the word blame. So it's a sign that people aren't able to think if that word is used. Yeah, um, yeah, and we use it's, it, and we and we and we and it's not unchallenged, and, and it's in our newspapers, and it's in you know it's used in you know by leaders of the country as though it is it, it's not delusional, but it is as though it's not it has meaning that it hasn't got. I'm 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 just interested why it has so much so much power, and you know so much influence on on oneself and also collectively as a. Uh, as a group in society because i think it helps us in mourning it helps yeah. us you know in a period of mourning you know if we have someone to blame if we can scapegoat somebody all the sort of murderous feelings that come up to do with loss you know one of the stages of grief 
So when we suffered a loss, we have different stages of grief. And an early stage of grief is you have a, a, a period of denial and then you go into a stage of anger and blame and murderousness, actually, really. I mean, I'll quote um, a friend of mine who lost her daughter who said to me, you know, if you'd have stood in front of me after I'd lost my daughter, I could have shot you and I wouldn't have thought twice about it. You know, there's something about grief that is very dangerous. There's a stage of grief. It's very dangerous. Um, you know, that is is sort of murderous. It's a way of projecting out the, the, the anger and the fury about what's happened and the loss. But if we can get through, it's a normal stage of grief. If we can get through, we go on to bargaining and then to sadness and acceptance. So it's a normal stage of grief, but it is quite dangerous. And the thing with blame is it fits in very well to that stage of grief and mourning. And if we can powerfully shoot out our aggression and our murderousness and actually psychically or really kill someone in, in a lot of cultures, a lot of different situations. I mean, actually all of us, you know, can contribute to actually people being um, persecuted or scapegoated and murdered, you know, after, after loss events. You know, it's amazing how often you'll see this with people, individuals being exposed after loss events and held responsible. And it is, we've got um, a sort of string them up mentality. But if we understand that is a part of the mourning process and can be, can be contained culturally, then that's okay. But if we don't understand that and we actually think that this is okay and we sign up to it and we sort of collude with it, then it's not okay. But that is, you know, there's a real struggle with that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, one can argue there's an onus on on, on us uh, as a medical profession um, to sort of call this out and 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 bring it to the surface and and um, you know discuss these um, difficult stages of mourning of of uh, of trauma within the profession. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, certainly when I trained, we had half a day on the mourning process <laughs> in training. And, and, you know, the other thing that also makes it very difficult is as doctors, we're extremely stressed. So we're not in a mentalizing state of mind a lot of the time. And we often very frightened. So if we just talk about the case of Hadiza Bawagawa, for example, where you actually have a doctor who is charged with manslaughter and convicted of manslaughter after a death, after, you know, as a result, in my, in my view, as a result of um, something becoming very uncontained in the mourning process. So you actually have a a real attempt at annihilation of, of somebody. Um, so we have reason to be frightened in the culture that we're in at the moment, that, you know, we're dealing with loss and grief and people die and and we might be caught up in this and blamed and persecuted ourselves. And, and a lot of us have been at different times. Um, and that makes us very frightened. And what tends to happen when you're very frightened and you're in that state of mind is you just think, please let let it be you that gets this, not me. And, and, and you're just so relieved that actually it's your colleague who's getting blamed for something, not you, because it's a fight, flight, your survival state of mind. So I don't think, you know, it's very difficult for us to have the capacity to stand back and try and work together and, um, and support each other in trying to counter this culturally. You know, but ultimately, you know, we really as a profession do need to stand up for each other and ourselves and stand together. You never get scapegoated if someone is sitting with you. So, you know, there is something about us, us working together as a profession and trying to stand together um, to to not join in with this the sort of persecutory environment we might be working in and functioning in uh, and to support each other. And um, 
you, you know, this service, uh, practitioner health is, is addressing that to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah, no, no, very much so. Yeah. How, how, how did you get interested in psychiatry? Ah, so, um, <laughs> that, that long <laughs> a, bit of a, a bit of a change of, um, direction. Um, so my grandfather, well, he was a GP, he was German Jewish, came over 1933 uh, and he was a GP, but became a psychiatrist and was very interested in psychoanalysis as well. And, and sort of set up Brandon Center in, um, in London for young people, but very much along psychoanalytic lines. So he was very interested in, in psychiatry. And I remember in his living room, he was very depressed, post-Holocaust, very depressed. But what he had in his room was all Freud's first edition, you know, standard edition of Freud. And I, I remember being totally sort of, co it was a bit like having Bibles, you know, in his, he had this sort of thing. And I remember being very drawn to them and, and thinking that there's something in there that could help with all of this, you know, the post-Holocaust pain or whatever, there was something in it. Um, and then I, I worked in the BBC for a while after leaving school and went back to do medicine as a mature student. Both my parents are doctors and I tried very hard to avoid doing medicine, but felt... Uh -oh. Why? Why? Because I, I, saw, I saw how difficult it was. You mm. know, they were both working all the time and they were struggling and, and very stressed and anxious about their patients. And, but clearly having a very meaningful job, clearly very meaningful. Um, so I tried to avoid it for a while and then thought I can't <laughs> sort of similar things happened to my son actually but um, and then you know if something's your vacation you can't avoid it and it was like going into the church in my family in a way when I said I wanted to do medicine and then I was doing medicine and thinking yeah I could do GP could do obstetrics I suppose and on my first day in psychiatry I remember sitting down and being they, they said oh Mary Robertson who I worked with she has a long ward round you know you know six or eight hours and I thought good heavens that's terrifically long and I put on comfortable shoes thinking that we were going to be walking around and I was led into um, a room to say oh sit down would you like tea biscuits and then we talked about the patients with like real interest about their histories we met them we met their families we then discussed them again and I thought after the first day this is the best job ever in the whole world I can't believe there's a job as wonderful as this and I don't think I ever stopped feeling that. I don't think I have stopped feeling that. Um, and and the BBC, what, what did you do in the BBC? I was an engineer. Oh, wow. So I went in after at the 18 or 19 and I was a female engineer. And I was a, a, one of the first female engineers they had there. So for a while, I, I, I do not know how I got in because I absolutely, absolutely no capacity for engineering whatsoever really but um i'll, I'll block the capacity equipment. being the word you know capacity, capacitors <laughs> and everything so what 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 exactly did a bbc engineer do, do in those days so i worked in outside broadcast so what we used to do is go to any live event and set up sort of temporary studios and radio links so it could be broadcast live um but but at that time it was in the 1980s you know there was a lot of drinking in the bbc at that point certainly in the environments I, I was in it was you know I was the only woman I was the first women woman um in outside broadcast at that time and I got in my interview I got asked I got all asked all these questions and one of the questions was if you um you set everything up and it was lunchtime what would you do and I thought this was a trick question um and I was well I'd, I'd check all the equipment and I'd make sure it was all you know fine and they said no what, what would you what would you do if, if 
hey, if you if there was the option of going to the pub, what would you would you say yes to that? And I went, yes. And they went, great, tick, you're in. <laughs> That's obviously <laughs> the, the main thing, particularly as being, you know, they, they obviously needed to get some women in because they'd obviously been told this was the case. And they were very, very frightened that somehow a woman would come in and, and really uh, spoil their the way that they functioned. But actually, it was, it's very good fun. I, it was a very enjoyable job, but not one that you'd want to, that I would have wanted to be in all my life. So what 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 was it about that job that you thought, no, not for me anymore? And, well, you know. uh, the, the amount of drinking wouldn't no. have been sustainable, and, <laughs> and it, was, it was very, very sociable. But I, it, for me, it, for me, and it lacked meaning. For me, it lacked meaning, and I think that was the, um, you know, it was extremely. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, again, lovely people I worked with, but it lacked meaning. And so. and and did your grandfather meet uh, Freud? And did he sort of? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, he had an analysis from um, an analyst called Frieda from Reichmann, who was a um, an analyst in Germany, one of Freud's contemporaries. And his wife, you know, worked knew Anna Freud very well, so um, worked at the Anna Freud Center. She was a child and adolescent analyst. So, so yes, they were they they were very much part of that um, that culture. Yeah, yeah, sort of growing movement and probably cult at that time. And, you know, things were bubbling up uh, yeah, unconsciously. But also, yeah, I mean, very, so it's a very, very creative time, but also the time of refugees and, and, and coming over from Germany, you know, the sort of exodus of Jewish academics from Germany. So, so, so complex, very sort of complex, very creative, but also very traumatized. And, and did, did you hear sort of a lot of stories about the Holocaust or was it not really talked about amongst you? Oh, no, no, no. I don't know. Certainly for, I'm a third generation. So my father was born, born here. Uh, and I think in common with many third generation, uh, you know, my mother's Irish, Irish, Irish Catholic, but my father was Jewish in common with many, I think, third generation. We were very, very exposed to the Holocaust nonstop, you know, um we used to call it in my family with my dad my dad couldn't stop talking about the nazis and the war and he'd be reading stuff about hitler all the time and um you know yeah so it, it was it, it was you know i was got to watch the you know the what it was the holocaust series on tv when i was very young you know very very exposed to the holocaust there was no no escape from that and I think my children um are much freer of it than, than I was um but you know it only takes time you know that they get fascinated again with you know with age and you know with 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 coming into into wisdom and into well, realization reparation, well, reparation takes generations I think my daughter is now uh, in a very what looks to be a very healthy relationship with a young, lovely Jewish um, German young man. So, so reparation takes generations, I think. Um, you know, and it's quite hard work. So, how, how how do your parents get together? You know, one's one's Catholic, one's Jewish. What what's the um... doctors on the ward? <laughs> ward rounds. So, so, like medicine transcends religion and sort of all that stuff I think that's probably I think that that's interesting that's an interesting point I think it can do I think that maybe is the is the um yes that's the the belief 
system that 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 does. I mean, that does, yeah. Which is a bit dangerous if we intertwine NHS you know, with this. That so the NHS supersedes the uh, you know the transcendent, and yeah. then we're back to sort of square one again. You know? Yeah, and I think there are quite. It's interesting. I think there's quite a few. I know quite of quite a few Jewish Catholic Irish Catholic you know, couples from that generation. And I just wondered whether there was something about the guilt, you know, there's Jewish guilt and Irish Catholic guilt that somehow, again, maybe that transcends as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, I think the, you know, the the Jewish Catholic guilt is, is stronger than the Muslim uh, Jewish or the Muslim Catholic. I mean, I'm sure there's listeners out there, you know, and if they are listening, it'd be good to hear from them about how they've, you know, transcended the sort of Muslim Jewish um, ideological clash, so to speak. Um, what is the what's the Muslim guilt like? Uh, profound. <laughs> yeah, a bit more along the lines of Jewish guilt, then. Yeah, very profound. I mean, you know, from my family history, we lost a lot of family members because of faith, um, and that was only um, forty years ago. Um, so we're kind of newish in terms mm -hmm. of you know dealing with the guilt um but yeah it's very traumatic and it's taken me some time to kind of process that and and take back my projections you know my horrible projections on my patients um but yeah it's it's um it's very evident you know when mm -hmm. i'm in positions of, of fear how i'm projecting all my negative um guilt shame and and anxiety driven negative characteristics uh, that i project on my patients um mm. so yeah it's taken some time i mean you know psychotherapy and, and psychoanalysis help, has helped a lot actually mm -hmm. you know in my journey of being here today um and mm. speaking to you today so maybe it's something that should be part and parcel of you know being a physician you know that well, I thought it was. I absolutely thought, well, I th certainly thought it was part of being a psychiatrist. And I was talking to somebody else who was saying there's actually a person, you know, younger generation than me, who also said the same thing, is that they went into psychiatry and absolutely thought all psychiatrists would have their own therapy. And I remember being horrified to find out that that wasn't the case. You know, it seems... Um... I mean, it doesn't make sense, really. I mean, you know, because you're looking through your own lenses. Hmm. So everything's been tainted with your own just mental processes you know yeah. let alone you know um your own unconscious which which is um yeah, i guess infinitely complicated um and quite confusing at times i mean i gave a talk about dealing with burnout and i talked about the unconscious and it was very confusing because you know medicine comes with a different paradigm you know it comes with certainty mm -hmm. and you know what we're talking about here is sort of uncertainty in dealing with plausibility um mm -hmm. you know which is a different side of the coin um but you know but... i mean again, again certainty is a bit is a non-mentalizing state of mind and sometimes you need to be able to go in that to be able to make a leap you know yeah i suppose to be able to go and, and, and leap into having surgery you're yeah. very anxious and there has to you know there has to be you know it performs a very useful um useful part of our functioning to be able to make a leap of faith if you like when we have to take yeah. a risk yeah, I mean, you know, that's why the NHS has that sort of faith-based proposition. Mm. You know, uh, it's there, and that's what's keeping it going. 
um, because it's supernatural mm. and it's beyond um, the certainty, but we still have that certainty that it's, that it's beneficial and that it's mm. going to move us forward. Um, you know, coming back to the notion of the trauma that my family went through because of their faith, you know, it, it's been a total curse, but at the same time, it's a total blessing as well. You know, you know, because of the pain and and the suffering that one goes through, other people can understand that and and um, reflect upon it and find insight into their own pain and suffering, mm. um, which I think will bring them forward into, you know, into new horizons of experiences. But there is also something in that to do with intergenerational responsibility, isn't there? I mean, you know, again, with maybe the same for you, but certainly um, being brought up with the Holocaust in your background, you become extremely aware of intergenerational trauma. Um, and there's something, you know, being aware of that, I think there's something about, well, how do we mitigate that for the next generation? Yeah. You know, how do we not perpetuate something and how do we mitigate it? And I think for me, that seems to, that's a very important aspect of being alive <laughs> one of the important tasks in my life is to try and process some of this trauma so it does, i don't just pass it on yeah yeah um, and i think that's where sort of wisdom practices come in and i think that's where you find the wisdom in these in these experiences um um and you know the whole notion around uh, finding wise practices in art, for example, and in beauty and in truth or or in love, um, you know, that allows us to to mitigate the trauma so that we can dissipate the um, uh, just the pain, mm -hmm. but not dissipate, you know, uh, the other insights that we can get, um, you know, from previous generations in order that, you know, the same mistakes don't happen again. I mean, that's the underlying sort of ground in which you know we try and move forward with this is that we don't make the same mistakes love is an interesting one isn't it really i mean you know we can use use that it, it, i mean it's interesting about the the role of love and how difficult yeah. it can be to access that you know how elusive it can be but how uh you know how blocked it can be um, yeah i mean i think we've you know essentially i mean I use this term, I hope it's not too crass, but, you know, we've bastardized the term love a bit too much and, we, you know, we, we've turned it into something else, you know, which it isn't. Um, and I think that's a reflection of how materialistic we've become. So we've, we've, we've turned it into, you know, a materialistic kind of having and, you know, a consummation uh, way of thinking, you know, like a, like an Eros way of, um exhibiting love um but as in an look, ownership type of way you mean yeah just just consummation you know erotic love is consuming something mm -hmm. that that you enjoy doing you know wh whether it's having sex or eating chocolate or you know drinking coffee so you but, know, al that's... but also i think what you're talking about there is a bit about the, uh, the the assuming some sort of ownership of a love object that actually it's a sort of extension of ourselves yeah yeah. But it isn't really, it's what's called, what I would think about, I don't know, with you, a sort of primitive love. This right, idea yeah. is, you know, this sort of this sort of codependent type of picture of, of love. I, I love you for what you're actually able to give me. Yeah, yeah. Rather than yeah. loving you and you can leave, you know. 
I yeah you. so i mean if there's no reciprocal benefit to this then yeah de definitely that would be sort of a um an erotic love of sort because i i will combine with you knowing that i will get a lot of pleasure probably more pleasure than you then that's that's the kind of i think love that that um is quite popularized now in in uh, modern day culture the next level is 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 the philea kind of love which is the reciprocal mm -hmm. um combining uh and consummation so we both benefit from this you know mm -hmm. by coming together and enjoy what we're enjoying so that's like the next level um mm -hmm. you know so that's what you call the pleasant life uh actually not the pleasant life there's something more than pleasant life you know sort of the happier life whereas the pleasant life is mm -hmm. is literally um you know consuming for your own pleasure mm -hmm. you know the sort of hedonic um and then sort of you know the highest form of love which is like the being form which is um the meaningful one which is i raise you um from you know a non-person to a to a fully fledged person through my sacrifices um so that's the kind of uh, agapic, now I, agapic love. So, so yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a bit about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the way that you've described it, I'm trying to think about that. Um, because sacrifice is also an interesting concept, isn't it? What sacrifice is, because it can be very masochistic. You know, I'm very anti-masochism. Yeah, I mean, and there's still very, a pleasant. Very, you know, there's still a you know the, the 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 reason why I'm masochistic here is because there's pleasure for me, and there's probably pleasure for me more than you when I'm doing this, you know, this activity. So there's still some, you know, erotic. Well, well, well that's I, I suppose I'm I'm the the question about sacrifice I think is um so it's another area that I'm very focused on is to do with sort of sadomasochism, and the, right. I think as doctors we're very masochistic, but that is um you know it's a sort of disturbing and needs to be challenged really um something in the in the in the fun in that functioning so when i hear sacrifice it makes me concerned a bit about that aspect of something yeah i mean sacrifice in the sense that i'm giving myself to you in order for you to become someone greater but in that process it makes life more meaningful and it gives me more insight into myself and what I can potentially be through that giving to the other person who I know won't be able to give back. So it's, you know, it's a form of forgiving. So but is, but is, that a, is that a more spiritual thing? Because is it really towards another person or is it towards a, a sort of a, a sort of like a, a picture of, of, of other, a sort of, what would be thought about as something larger than ourselves? I think that comes later. So, you know, that's the after effects rather than the for effect. Mm -hmm. So reflecting backwards, you realize that this gives you that sense of bigger than oneself, you know, a transcendent function. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, uh, as a way of trying to get that transcendent function, this is one of the processes that you are making uh, essentially the love of parents the parents have this glove of meat 
you know you don't have a an erotic kind of love for them or a philea kind of love for them you have an agapic love for them which is where you you have this lump of potential and that you can quite easily leave them there and they die and 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 disintegrate or you can give yourself um, into that being knowing that there's potential in order to create them um, into something even greater and that process creates a transcendence within you unrelated to a you know a superior being or a so you know nothing to do with propositions here you know there's mm -hmm. no propositions there's no procedures that you know uh, that you have to follow to to be accepted within a creed but it seems to be <clears throat> you know some kind of way of make making life more meaningful i mean i mean i talk about these things because it i think it's related to burnout i think one of the major reasons why people burn out is because they lose lose the meaning of life so there's a um a crisis of meaning so you know how do we recreate uh, a meaningful life or how do we inject meaning back into uh -huh. one's life um uh -huh. so that's the kind of um yeah window i'm sort of looking through there um yeah. and you know because so with psychoanalysts so as a psychoanalyst i'd be thinking about that in terms of the commitment to the creative unconscious that of, of, of a sort of it's a larger task a task larger than larger than myself or even a couple yeah because you know you're tapping into the total unknown and you know we can only work within the known mm. you know the relevant known but then you know that sort of um, infinitely small and then the more you tap into it the sort of you know the more you realize that it's even more infinitely less known so you know it is a it is a scary proposition but you know as you said we've got to step into the um mm -hmm. um into the abyss with faith which is essentially trust you know you've got to trust that you will find the relevant information and use it in in the most relevant way mm -hmm. yeah. um but it's certainly a you know an interesting discussion. Um, I mean, we don't really talk about you know the whole uh, sort of truths that you found out about suicide. It'd be good to kind of hear a bit of that because we're we're coming towards the end <laughs> of of the podcast. Um. Well, I was thinking about where do I start with that. Um, so what you were hearing me talking about was a sort of summary of years of around sort of 15 years now of engagement and thinking about suicide and um, what seems to emerge from from looking and thinking about suicide and looking at um, data and talking to people. Um, are there some certain, and, and you know, I, I'm part of a group that's been running for the last 15 years for consultant psychiatrists who've lost patients to suicide and now homicide. Um, and you see certain patterns emerging in, in, in the things that people are talking about around suicide and their own responses to it. But what you start to see is certain patterns and the patterns are repeated and repeated. And these patterns are different to what we're told about suicide. Um, and I think really bear some engagement with and talking about it. And when I do talk about it, you can feel that for many people, it is a relief. I mean, there's something about suicide that strikes at the very heart of what it means to be human. Um, and when you come in contact with suicide, it really shatters 
um, illusions that we might have about reality, because <laughs> there's something it puts us up really um, up against how hard it is to live. You know, I think one of the illusions that we have is that life is uh, sort of easy, straightforward, not painful, but actually life can be, you know, when we tune into it, it's really hard. And I think there's something about suicide that really challenges challenges us to face face that ourselves. Um, and, you know, again, psychoanalysts would talk a bit about the death drive, you know, that there is something about us being human beings that are, are driven towards, there's a part of us that's driven towards wanting or whether wanting isn't quite the right word, but, uh, but there, a real drive towards something, um, a sort of death, deathly state or death. Uh, and maybe the suicide that brings us up against whatever it is that's trying to be described by psychoanalysts in that way. Um, so I think there's a lot, lot to be thought about about it. And I think the thing that what I talk about is it's very difficult for us to comprehend or think about suicide. So what we try and do is we try and simplify it to make it into something like an accident, for example. So if someone's died, it's because they were looking at something on social media and that's then triggered this. Um, or that uh, there was a ligature point left out and they've, you know, like in mental health, there's a removal of ligature points, which are almost everything. And that someone has just sort of tripped over this, but actually suicide isn't an accident, you know, um, that suicide results from the psychoanalytic thinking from complex and probably universal mental mechanisms. That we all probably have, have these, um, these sort of internal psychodynamics that could lead us to do that this, which is very frightening because it might not just be us, it could be our families or, you know, uh, as well there's something about thinking about suicide that brings it very close to home um so that these that these are the real unconscious dynamics that could lead any of us to and you just have to watch something like the twin towers and this is very painful to talk about but when you can actually see people making the choice you could actually see people making the choice to die by their own movement and and choice there rather than to remain and be subjected to something so that there's something about suicide that is part of the human condition um and we all have these unconscious mental mechanisms that can lead us to do this and we don't understand these mental mechanisms we don't we actually try really hard not to think about them and there's only been a couple of psychoanalysts that have really tried to think about them um there's only been a few and most recently don campbell and uh, rob hale and don campbell have written a book about um working in the dark the unconscious you know really trying to understand the unconscious processes that lead someone to die in this way so, you know, this it's suicide is very complex. It's not a simple thing. And it's very unlikely that someone has just made the decision in that moment to die, that there have been a very long run up and that the etiology for suicide might even have started in the womb. There's a lot of suicidologists that think that 50% of, uh, of the outcome of dying by suicide is genetically, it has a genetic propensity to it. So, you know, there's a, a long run up to someone dying there's many many things that have happened in someone's life to mean that this happens at, at this point and we don't understand it and we will never understand it and we'll never know in any case why it's happened um, and I think there's lots of evidence to back that up I mean actually you know the more research that's being done into suicide more observational research I think the clearer it becomes if you hear Nav Kapoor talking about this that um, you know with the what the, the National Confidential Inquiry finds out that every year 73% of people who die by suicide haven't been in contact with mental health services at all in the last year. So that's only 27% um, that have. And of those 27% that have, 
95% of those who've had a risk assessment at their last contact mental health services are rated at a no or low risk. So it could be that we just haven't got the right tools, you know, or it could be that actually it's very, very difficult to know or predict uh, if this is going to happen, if someone is going to do this act uh, in, their, in their future. And they themselves might not even know. So when people have survived very serious attempts, they often haven't known themselves they're going to do it, which makes sense because suicide would be something called an acting out event. And you act out, it's the defense mechanism, you act out when you can't put something into words. So when you can't symbolize something, so you can't symbolize emotionally, you act and it's through the action that you realize that you feel something. So I might, you know, I might do some, I might do something. We, we all act out all the time. You might say things, oh, good heavens, why did I say something? We might actually do something, go out and get drunk when we're stressed or um, get into an argument or get into a fight or do something, you know, have a, all sorts of different ways we, we act out. Um, but, but that's, it's often that action that allows us to know we feel something. So if this is right, then there are many people who make very serious, serious suicidal acts and, and who don't survive. And that is the first that they know about them being suicidal, they're acting. And if they survive it, they can say, quite often they'll say, I didn't know that I was gonna do that. I had no idea that that's what was gonna happen. So quite often people don't know themselves that this is what's gonna happen. So that's another aspect of that. And also going alongside with that is that people are very, very, people who survive, not people who survive the event, but the people around them who who um, who are left are, are nearly always if not always totally shocked about this happening and again this is very difficult because this all of this adds up to us not knowing it's going to happen not knowing why it's going to happen not knowing who it's going to happen to um, and this is very difficult to deal with so we create narratives so very 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 um uh narrative is okay they were looking at social media and of course there might be a trigger in that but that yeah. isn't going to be the whole reason that they've they've got to this point um you know there'll be many many more factors that we don't understand about why they've got to this point and even if it you know even if social media is a trigger which it might be we're not going to know that because the person that that's here isn't isn't here anymore you know so it's difficult it is difficult to talk about um about this because it leaves us in a in a state of sort of unreconciled grief <laughs> it's very difficult isn't it and I think we have a lot of compassion huge amount of compassion it's something we fear losing people we love to suicide and have a huge amount of compassion for um for those that are bereaved in this way um you know so I, I think that's probably very important to um to say really uh, um, those are just some of the some yeah I mean the, I mean yeah I, I mean there's about. a lot more there and 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 you know um how how can people get hold of you? What's what's the best way for people to read your um um your books and your uh, articles and get hold um, of your presentations? Ah, uh, well, I don't. Um, it's, so we've done some research on um we've done some research on the effect that suicide has. We've got um myself and my colleague Joe O'Reilly have edited a book called Seminars and the Psychotherapies, which is um a Royal College book, um published by Cambridge. Um, 
and it you know and that's and in that book that's actually I mean I think it's a good book we've contributed to it but we've also got lots of many many other contemporary medical psychotherapists who are working within frontline mental health services to write chapters about different mental health difficulties about contemporary contemporary um, understanding of of different areas of psychiatry and and mental health um there's about organizational functioning. So there's many, many different chapters addressing lots of different areas within mental health um, and thinking about the psychodynamic understanding of these, these, uh, these different areas. Um, and I mean, I think online has got open access to some of the articles and, and research we've done. So if you put my name probably into Google. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. impossibility of working in the, in the current NHS is um is is the Tavistock Institute one of the Tavistock Institute talks which is available? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we do need to sort of have another discussion about how we go forward with uh, with the NHS in the current situation. I think that'll take quite some time to to unpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'd I'd like to finish on this. Um, what would your uh, three top tips be to yourself? Um, who is about to embark on a on a medical career but start medical school having gone through what you've gone through over the last um yeah 10 years of course live it just live it you know live it follow your heart um definitely follow your heart but also know know when it's time to leave and i think that's a really important um important tip in general, is to really tune in when it's time to change and to leave something. And I think what I see happen in the NHS is when people don't leave, you know, we all have a creative, um, you know, the, the creative engagement in a relationship. And there's a time when it's creative and there's a point when a relationship, be it with your workplace, whatever, might end. And it's, a, you know, it's a very difficult thing to work out, isn't it, when a relationship's ended? It's very painful. But there's something about being able to tune into that. And when I've seen people not work it out in the NHS, for example, but this is true in relationships as well, when they stay, when it's gone beyond the time to leave for them, when it's stopped being creative, something stops working and becomes destructive. You know, and actually sometimes something in this unconscious of the organisation will make them leave. You know, they'll leave through a grievance or they'll leave through a complaint or something disturbing will happen, which means they'll have to leave. But if they can tune in to what feels right to them, when it's right to stay and when it's right to make a different choice, I think that's a that's a very important point that I would that I would say, really. Wonderful, Rachel. It's been a uh, great pleasure listening to you and uh, thanks for coming on. Okay, lovely to meet you.